Thank you very much for that introduction, Siobhan. Um, I'd like to begin by thanking you and the Royal Irish Academy for giving me the opportunity to speak on Clontarf in this, the year of its millennium, and as part of a series that has included so many eminent speakers. My own qualifications are slightly more modest. As a researcher with strong interests in the Irish Viking Age, I have, of course, been drawn to Clontarf. Everyone is, inevitably. But this general interest was focused by my work on the Irish Battlefields Project, which I worked on in 2008. This government-funded research project was jointly carried out by two companies, Enneclon and Rubicon, and as a senior researcher with Enneclon, I occupied the shifting ground, as it were, between history and archaeology, contributing to a project that eventually examined some 250 battles date, ranging in dates from AD 722 up to 1798. Now complete, its results will be published as a six-volume set over the next few years. This presentation expands and develops some of my work on Clontarf for that project. You can imagine that sort of Clontarf took a little bit more time than your, your average battle, as it were. What makes Clontarf virtually unique among early medieval Irish battles, of course, are not the, uh, is not the archaeology, but rather the exceptional historical records relating to it. Particularly the text you can see here, the Cogagail Regaliv, which was compiled perhaps 90 or 100 years after the battle was fought and published uh, in translation by J.H. Todd in 1867. The historiography of the battle is almost as complex as its sources, and I'm therefore very relieved that individuals who are far better qualified to talk about this than I have already discussed these aspects uh, uh, at some length earlier in this series. As a result, I feel free to bypass many of the historiographical debates and instead to focus on another potential source for the battle, archaeology. Here, however, we have something of a problem, one which is reflected in the question mark which, uh, and the title of this presentation. After several years of research and perhaps two minutes into this presentation, I have to now have to admit that there is no archaeology of Clontarf. Um, that, uh, at least, that is, if we interpret the phrase literally. There is no direct physical archaeological evidence for the battle which has ever been recovered anywhere in the Clontarf area. Now, while some of you may feel like walking out in disgust at this point, I hope you'll bear with me as I attempt to explain why this is not altogether unexpected and how we may be able to go so at least some way towards compensating for this apparent absence. We should perhaps begin by asking exactly what the modern archaeologist might expect to find at a medieval battlefield. Battlefield or conflict archaeology, while it still might see, while still seen as slightly unusual in Ireland, has seen steady growth over the last few decades. Internationally, much of this research has been driven by technological developments, particularly the increasing availability and sophistication, initially of metal detectors, and more recently of GIS mapping systems. While the indiscriminate and essentially unregulated use of metal detectors has effectively removed any hope of carrying out future archaeological investigations on some English and American sites, their careful, systematic, and skilled use within carefully formulated research projects has added new dimensions to our understanding of other battlefields, such as the English Civil War site of Edge Hill in Warwickshire, dating from 1642, which a map, a distribution map of which you can see here. Now, I am not, I wish to stress, arguing for the wholesale use of metal detectors at Clontarf. 
Rather, I want to point out that their key role in many research projects presupposes the deposition of metal artefacts on a battlefield. And here we encounter a key difference between the medieval and the modern periods. With the development of gunpowder, firearms gradually became the dominant weapons used in battles. The resulting lead shot, musket bowls and bullets are effectively impossible to recover following modern engagements, and thus they tend to remain at battle sites where researchers can potentially recover them, as with these examples here from the Battle of the Boyne site in County Meath. In the Middle Ages, on the other hand, the primary missile weapon was the bow, and arrows are not necessarily left behind afterwards. Battlefields were typically picked clean after a major conflict, and the gathering of arrows was self-evidently an easier process than the recovery of modern projectiles. Then too, as Glenn Ford has pointed out, lead is a relatively stable material which tends to survive in the ground. Iron, on the other hand, is unstable, and oxidation, rusting, can potentially remove all traces of any stray arrowheads that might be left behind. There have been exceptions, of course, notably at the battle site of Towton, Yorkshire, fought between Lancastrian and Yorkist forces in, 14, in 1461, when these arrowheads have been recovered, as you can see, in varying states of preservation and have been subject to intensive research, revealing sort of new dimensions about that particular battle. Now, Clontarf, of course, was fought almost 450 years before Towton, and it should be expected that any arrowheads would be even more corroded and less readily identifiable as military artefacts. There is a point where you, you reach the ubiquitous uh, uh, miscellaneous iron fragment in your archaeological catalogues, where it's no longer possible to tell what an object was, even with the benefit of X-ray. Of course, we can also question whether archery played the same role in an early 11th century Irish battle as it did in a mid-15th century English one. Andy Halpin's excellent study of the projectile heads from the Dublin excavations demonstrates that the men of Dublin, at least, had access to the appropriate technology at the time. And it is striking that in the Cugga, arrows are the first weapons named when the arms of the foreigners are being described before the battle. On the other hand, there's no reference to archery in the description of the battle itself, and it is possible that the Kugga is describing the military tactics of the early 12th century when it was written, rather than the early 11th century, which it claims to be describing. If we cannot even be certain that archery played a major part in battle, the search for projectile heads may be a lost cause. What other evidence, then, might be expected? I was just mentioned to Siobhan as we started the privilege I feel in standing in what I think may be the very room in which William Wilde addressed uh, the Royal Irish Academy in 1866 um, wh uh, when uh, he reported the discovery of skeletons, weapons and other artefacts at Island Bridge, which was then on the western edge of the city of Dublin. On the basis of artefacts, Wilde identified these as the, the remains of Vikings and although he did not specifically link these skeletons to Clontarf, he proposed that these individuals had been, in a wonderful phrase, killed in battle or some sudden skirmish, and lay there on the lightly covered gravel field on the south side of the Liffey until the birds of prey picked their bones and the weeds, grass, and soil accumulated over them during the last eight or nine hundred years. It's a wonderful image. But today we know that site formation processes do not operate in that manner. Bodies do not bury themselves, 
and human nature being what it is, large valuable artifacts such as weapons are rarely left untouched beside them. Wilde was describing not the remains of a battle, but rather a number of shallow graves in the western section of what we have begun to call the Kilmainham Island Bridge Burial Complex, the largest Viking cemetery in Western Europe outside Scandinavia, found just two kilometers from where we're standing. And this is a composite map which we generated as part of the Irish Viking Graves Project. Exciting though Kilmainham Island Bridge is, uh, and despite the best efforts of some of Wilde's contemporaries, we now know that this site has no direct links to Clontarf, or indeed to any military activity as such. Parallels from across medieval Europe indicate that battle casualties were not left to rot where they fell, and that their fate usually depended first on whether they were on the winning or losing side, and secondly, of course, on their rank. High-status individuals might still expect to be buried in consecrated ground, but those of less exalted status were often buried in mass graves. As archaeological techniques have improved, the identification of such mass graves has become, if not common, then certainly not as rare as once they were. Their interpretation, however, is not always straightforward. In 2009, archaeologists excavating in advance of a relief road at Weymouth, Dorset, found a large pit on Ridgeway Hill. This contained the remains of no less than 54 men, all of whom had been sadly beheaded. No artifacts were recovered, suggesting the bodies had been stripped before burial. Indeed, it has been suggested they may have been stripped before execution. Scientific analysis of their teeth indicates a non-English origin for these individuals, while a radiocarbon date of 980 to 1030 shows that this grave is broadly contemporary with Clontarf and in an English context with a series of Dangeld-related campaigns which culminated in the seizure of England by King Canoe in 1016. This interpretation has not, however, gone unchallenged. While Ridgeway Hill is a mass grave, it, mu it must en represent individuals who were captured rather than killed in battle. And the pit, while probably the execution site, need not correspond to the battle site. Recently, researchers such as Girani have argued that the Ridgeway bodies need not even represent a warband. In 1002, Ethelred Onred, known to history as the Onredi, ordered the murder of all Danes living in England in what came to be known as the St. Bryce's Day Massacre. The Ridgeway pit could represent not the remains of marauding soldiers, but rather the remains of local Danish settlers and migrants sadly caught up in the events of 1002. Even then, when mass graves can be identified and, and dated, they cannot always be related to battles. If one is forced to deal with antiquarian records, and people will probably be aware that antiquarian records are something I spend a lot of my time looking at, then the situation, I'm afraid, is even worse. We've already noted the work of William Wilde, who was following a very common 19th century tradition in assuming that bodies and particularly bodies found with weapons, represented battle sites. Dublin's Viking graves, newly mapped here by the Irish Viking Graves Project, proved very tempting targets for this interpretation. The 19th century saw several attempts to identify the site of Clontarf using what contemporaries thought were mass graves. It was, for example, seriously suggested that an extensive group of skeletons found at the modern Parnell Square marked the site of Clontarf. In reality, of course, these skeletons are far more likely to represent an indigenous cemetery that slowly developed over a number of centuries and which eventually attracted three Viking graves, all accompanied by weapons. 
Even the Donnybrook find, long held to represent the site of of a Viking massacre, has now been reinterpreted, thanks to Dr. Betty O'Brien, as a more conventional cemetery that also managed to attract a single Viking weapon grave. It is only modern archaeological excavations, with a strong emphasis on context and osteological analysis, which can hope to identify mass graves of battle, battle casualties with any degree of certainty. But is there any hope of finding such graves at Clontarf? Various sources, such as the extensive casualty lists, imply that mass graves could have been created, and the Cogga is even more specific, stating that the victorious Munstermen went out into the field of battle and buried every one of the people that they were able to recognize there, and they made sledges and bears for those of them who were left alive, the wounded, and they carried 30 of the nobles who were killed there to the territorial churches, wherever they were situated, all over Erin. Those of lower status were presumably buried close to where they fell, although there is some chance that they could instead have been buried in a local church. At some later point, too, the surviving Dubliners and their allies presumably emerged to gather and dispose of their dead. Now, to date, of course, no mass grave has ever been found in the Clontarf area, nor is it, nor is it known as a centre for the discovery of arrowheads or other potential battlefield finds. The area has also been extensively developed for housing, a process which must mitigate against future discoveries, even if it does not entirely preclude the possibility. More generally, however, paralleled with other early medieval battle sites, suggests that we must resign ourselves to the fact that any traces of this battle, despite its clear historic importance, are likely to be tenuous and probably problematic. But this may be the point to ask a far more fundamental question. Where should we be looking? I have already noted 19th century attempts to locate the Battle at Parnell Square, an approach that was influenced not just by the cemetery there, but also by an over-literal reading of the Cugga, which describes the men of Dublin, Citric Silkbeard and his wife, standing on the battlements or ramparts of the town and watching the battle unfold. Thanks to Dr. Pat Wallace and his excavations at Wood Quay, we know that Dublin had ramparts at this time, a substantial earthen bank and palisade at the time of Clontarf, and a stone wall at the time when the Cugger was being compiled. And it's not certain, of course, to which the, the writer was, was referring. Given the local topography, as you can see, Parnell Square is about as close to Clontarf as it is possible to get while still remaining visible from the medieval town. However, the scenes on the ramparts of Dublin are more likely, I think, to represent some kind of literary trope, perhaps deliberately recalling Priam and the men of Troy in the Iliad. The the 20th century saw interpretations of the battle site shifting away from uh, Parnell Square and related sites back towards Clontarf um, as we understand it. In 1938, John Ryan, the most influential of this group of revisionists, arrived at what he described as the revolutionary conclusion that the Battle battle of Clontarf was fought at Clontarf. Um, Of the most recent publications, Magetigan does not specify a site, although his map implies a location in this area here, where the question mark is, while Sean Duffy tentatively suggests a site, and I quote, say between Castle Avenue and Seaview Avenue. It certainly should be noted 
that what many people, or indeed most people today, think of as the core of Clontarf, that is to say the junction between Clontarf Road and Vernon Avenue, um, actually lies much further to the east and is not actually situated in the townland of Clontarf at all, but rather in the neighbouring townland to the east called Green Lanes. Green Lanes may have been separated from Clontarf at a relatively early date, as the townland boundaries of Clontarf have clearly been subject to extensive modifications. This first edition ordnance survey map indicates that in the 1830s, Clontarf fell into two distinct parts. There was East Clontarf, which is this townland here, and West Clontarf, or Clontarf West, which is this townland here. Um, ironically, they were both separated at this stage by a narrow strip of Colester South, which had somehow spread down between the two of them. Together, these uh, two townlands, Clontarf West and Clontarf East, covered an area of just over 226 acres that extended, in modern terms, roughly from Clontarf Lawn Tennis Club to Merino Crescent at Fairview Park, and inland as far as the southern edge of Clontarf Golf Club and the southern edge of Clontarf Rugby Football Club, covering an area about 700 metres north-south by about 1,700 metres east-west. While these 19th century boundaries are not necessarily an exact reflection of early medieval Clontarf, and given the scale of the battle, they did not necessarily encompass the full extent of the fighting, they do, I believe, indicate that the heart of Clontarf lay perhaps 1.5 kilometres further west than the modern use of the term, i.e. the village of Clontarf at Vernon Avenue, might suggest. This location may help to explain several references to the weir of Clontarf, in sources relating to the battle, at least two of which date from the 12th century. This weir, or Corrath, was, as Duffy has recently pointed out, almost certainly a fish weir, a fish trap, if you will. But rather than being situated close to the village of Clontarf, or even close to the coast at the later Clontarf Castle, um, which was in, in uh, the townland of Clontarf East and was, is Duffy's preferred site for the battle, or core of the battle, this uh, weir of Clontarf, I would argue, was probably situated further to the west, at the townland of Clontarf West, where it could benefit from the tidal range and flow associated with the Tolka estuary. It is also important to appreciate just how much the local topography has, transform has been transformed within the relatively recent past. This map, uh, dates from the, dating from the early years of the 20th century, shows the underlying geological deposits in the area around Clontarf West. And just so you orientate yourselves, this is the townland of Clontarf West just here. The yellow area down here represents reclaimed land, a process that has indeed continued since this map was drawn. This is the railway line just here. Um, but it is, it is the various shades of orange that interest us here. The shore at Clontarf, i.e. Clontarf West, is a raised beach, which suggests continuity in the shoreline here, at least over the last thousand years. It is the area to the south and the west of the Tolka estuary which has seen the greatest changes. While the river gravel terraces on the north bank here are of post-glacial origin and were presumably in existence at the time of Clontarf, uh, and, and well formed at that stage, 
and that the date of the alluvial deposits is not entirely certain, but their presence in this area indicates that at some point in the past, the estuary in this area, close to Clontarf, Clontarf West, was just under a kilometre wide, stretching roughly from what is now Summerhill Parade to the Roman Catholic Church at Fairview Strand. Using this evidence, the river valley does not narrow substantially until about two kilometres further to the west, around what is now the Botanic Gardens and Glasnevin. Of course, this geological evidence cannot be taken entirely at face value. The raised beach at Clontarf, which I've just pointed out, suggests that, or indicates indeed, that there was some uplift in the area. And the evidence of Bernard de Gom's map of 1685, which is represented on this map by this thin red line here, um, indicates that most of the floodplain or the estuary of the Tolka was above mean sea level at, by that point. Any detailed reconstruction of the local topography at the time of Clontarf would need to be rent, would also would be rendered exceptionally difficult at this point in time by the huge amount of infill in the area, and need not, because of that infill, produce more precise results. So, uh, contours, for example, could be exceptionally difficult to reconstruct. With the evidence we have to hand today, however, and even allowing for sea level change and silting, it seems entirely reasonable to suggest the Tolka estuary while not perhaps a full kilometre wide in 1014, was substantially wider than it is today, with the river flanked by sand, mudflats, or shallow water, depending on the state of the tide on any given day. This geological evidence means that I must respectfully disagree with Sean Duffy's recent proposal that a feature referred to in the Kugga as Dovgold's Bridge cross this lower part of the Tolka in the same general area as the modern bridge between Ballybock and Fairview Strands. This suggestion, first mooted by John O'Donovan in the 19th century, relies on a place name link between this Dovgol's bridge, which is Druhid Dovgol, and Bal Doyle, Bolia Dovgol, to and from which the bridge could potentially have given access. In reality, the width of the river at this point must surely have discouraged bridge building particularly as any such bridge would effectively have been on the coast. Directly exposed to any easterly gales, to say nothing of strong tidal flows in both directions, any wooden structure in this position would have been regularly prone to damage, if not destruction. While there may, while there may, may well have been a crossing point here across the Tolka, it can only have been a ford, usable only at certain points of the tide, as indeed seems to have been the case with a much better known ford of Orchlea, at Dublin itself. Instead, I think we must revert to the alternative, most recently argued by Howard Clark, that Druhid Dovgol was an Irish rendering of what Geraldus Cambrensis, writing in Latin perhaps 80 years after the compilation of the Cugga, called the Pons Osmanorum, the Ostman's Bridge, by which was meant the bridge across the Liffey at Dublin itself. Um, this chap just here. Even in the absence of true archaeological evidence, this new understanding of the Tolka estuary has the potential to shed some additional light on the Battle of Clontarf and its aftermath, and particularly on one of the most enigmatic aspects of the Cugger's account of the battle, the role of the tide on that fateful day. According to Todd's translation, it was at the full tide the foreigners came out to fight the battle in the morning, and the tide had come to the same place again at the close of the day, when the foreigners were defeated, they had not at the last any place to fly to but into the sea. 
This indicates, taken literally, that the battle took approximately 12 hours, the time between two full tides. But Todd saw further benefit in this information in that it provided an opportunity to check the reliability of the Kugger as a source. He persuaded his colleague, the Reverend Samuel Houghton, MD, Professor of Geology at the University of Dublin, multitasking seems to be a speciality in that period, uh, to calculate the tide times on the 23rd of April, 1014. And with considerable skill, uh, Houghton worked out that the high water at Dublin on that day occurred at 5.30 a.m. and 5.55 p.m., seeming to correspond to the Cogger's description. Today, we have the benefit of computer technology to perform the same calculations. And I am grateful to Mr. Colin Shepherd of the United Kingdom Hydrographic Office for, for providing the following tables. Due to the shift from the Julian to the Gregorian calendar, the relevant day for tidal calculations is actually the 17th of April, by our reckoning, six days earlier than the 23rd of April we're more familiar with. According to this most more recent calculation, high water was at 0626 and 1910 on that day. Houghton's figures, it would seem, are out by approximately a day and refer probably to the 16th of April, though by modern calculations they're not absolutely spot on for that. This would have been the 22nd of April in the old calendar. Um, However, I don't in any way, way wish to denigrate Houghton's extraordinary mathematical ability in the 1860s in calculating this, and I should point out that Colin Shepherd of the Hydrographic Office points out very clearly that there is a potential with this distance for a certain amount of latitude and error, um, even with, with our computer programs. We also have to point out, of course, that an hour's difference between tides does not seriously affect Todd's core argument that the Cugger preserved an accurate recollection of the tides on Good Friday 1014. The new information does, however, throw some new light on the role of these tides in the battle. Easter is, of course, a lunar festival, and it has long been expected that the Good Friday tides were springs. That is to say, the tidal range and strength of flow would have been above average. As these tables confirm, however, the day of the battle, while not quite a neap, was a, was a week or more before the next spring tide. Even so, on the day of the battle, there was a range of 1.7 to 1.8 metres between a low water of 1.4 metres chart datum and high waters of 3.2 metres and 3.1 metres, respectively, respectively, rather, in the morning and in the, after and in the evening. When we combine this awareness of the tide with the geological evidence for the local topography, at least some of the Cogger's references to tides begin to make a little more sense. In particular, these figures and the new topographical information answer a puzzling question. Why was a group advancing from Dublin able to gain access to Clontarf at high water in the morning, without any difficulty apparently, while the same state of the tide in the evening proved a major barrier when they tried to retreat? Now I think we can posit a possible interpretation. Dawn on the 23rd of April, on the 17th of April old calendar, allowing uh, was at about 6.20 a.m. The forces based at Dublin may have marched even before this time. Rather than risk crossing the estuary within an hour or so of high water at 6.26, however, it must be assumed they crossed the Talca further upstream, presumably above the point of highest tidal flow. This is where it was in, in the 1840s. It may have been slightly further upstream in, the, uh, in 1014. Once above, of course, the point of highest tidal flow, water levels for fording the river are constant. 
These Dublin-centred uh, forces then marched along the north bank of the Tolka, approaching Clontarf from the west. On the basis of 19th century place name evidence, at least, the battle site, I think, would have been rather closer to the Tolka than was previously thought. Time does not allow for a discussion of its scale or the size of the battlefield, but as the tide of battle turned against them, those fleeing the battlefield must have been tempted by a potential escape route across the shallow Tolka estuary to safety or relative safety on the far shore. In the process, it would seem that many of them caught by the tide were drowned, as did some of the more determined members of the opposing Munster forces. It was then that Turlock, the son of Mercus and of Brian, went after the foreigners into the sea, when the rushing tide struck him a blow against the weir of Cluantharov, and so he was drowned, with a foreigner in his right hand, a foreigner in his left, and a stake of the weir through him, as the Cugger fairly dramatically puts it. For those who made it across the river, the ordeal was not yet over, for there was still about three kilometres between the Tolka and the head of what I have argued was Dublgold's Bridge at Dublin. I and others, that is. Sunset would have been at about half past eight that evening, so darkness would have provided no earlier safety for those fleeing the Munstermen and their allies. According to the Cugger again, speaking specifically of a struggle between the men of Connacht and the foreigners of Dublin as part of that of the broader conflict of Clontarf, sorry, it was at Dovegold's Bridge the last of these, i.e. the Dubliners, was killed. Um, Arnold, um, Arnold Scott and those who killed him were the household troops of Taigu Kjallig. This last named casualty died, therefore, not at the Tolka, but immediately outside the gates of Dublin and safety. As will be clear from previous papers in this series, neither the name nor this particular detail can necessarily be taken at face value within the, uh, within the Cugger. Uh, but the topographical evidence may be a little more reliable and has the potential to reflect a genuine tradition relating to the tides passed down from the time of the battle. At other levels, of course, it is possible to read the numerous references to the sea within the Kugger as a, as, a, as a literary metaphor. The Kugger is, after all, much more, I think, of a literary than an historical text. The sea in this literary convention is the natural inheritance of the Vikings, and it is therefore appropriate that the battle should end with their being driven into it like cattle, to use another metaphorical image from, from the Kugger. Even so, however, these elaborate metaphors may be based on a recollection of a real event, the fording of Tolka estuary at high water. And I couldn't resist putting up this image of the Howingston for Glendalough, the, uh, the Roskilde replica of a Viking longship, which as I'm sure you all know, while found in Roskilde Fjord in Denmark, was actually built almost certainly in Dublin in the 1040s, um, very shortly after the Battle of Clontarf. Now, Time, unfortunately, does not permit further discussion of the metaphorical reading of the text, or indeed of other major marine events uh, surrounding Clontarf, which are described in the Cugger. There is, for example, the mysterious reference to the full sea taking the Viking ships from them, which from a maritime perspective is a very difficult metaphor to understand, though I think it is possible to do so. Nor does it allow me to approach the battle from other archaeological perspectives. I could, for example, draw attention to the recent identification of an Irish spearhead type that may help to elucidate a descriptive passage in the Cugger, where the, the, this passage talking ironically about the, um, uh, the spearheads of the Irish forces at Clontarf speaks about their bright shining nails securing them to the, uh, the, the shafts of the spears 
And we found, now identified at Dublin, a, a virtually unique um, spearhead type, possibly inspired by Irish for, uh, prototypes, which, uh, which, which are characterized by a set of decorative rivets um, made of copper alloy, but perhaps originally gilded, which were a decorative feature in the socket securing it, it to, to the shaft. And this may be what the, the cog is actually talking about. So we could discuss that, or we could discuss other contemporary evidence for Viking and indeed Irish weaponry, the evidence from various river finds and, and, and lakes. The material culture of power, the artifacts uh, and legacy of some of the Viking and indeed Irish leaders is also, I think, a, a subject well worth consideration. But again, it is one which I must pass over here. Given the constraints of time, I have instead focused on two themes. First, there are, there are the problems associated with identifying early medieval battlefield sites generally, and how this might relate to the kinds of discoveries which one would expect to occur at Clontarf. Second, I have used a combination of topographical and tidal evidence to propose a new interpretation of the battle, or to perhaps to provide new evidence to support an older interpretation of it and its aftermath. By so doing, I hope that I've demonstrated that despite the absence of unambiguous archaeological evidence of the Battle of Clontarf, a detailed study of the landscape can nonetheless contribute to our understanding of events a thousand years ago. Thank you. Thanks very much, Stephen. Well, for uh, a man who said that there was probably no real archaeological evidence for a battle, you've certainly given us a lot of food for thought and raised a lot of questions in our minds. And I think the, um, uh, I'm sure there will be plenty of questions, um, particularly in reference to the, in relation to the um, location of the battle, the Talca estuary and all of that and what, um, what that says to us. So um, we invite questions from the floor now. Have you all been convinced? Stunned into silence. Thank you. Uh, have you any idea as to how many uh, soldiers there were on either side. Are we talking about hundreds or thousands or what? Thank you. It's an, it's an extremely interesting question and one we had to spend a lot of time thinking about when we were working on the Irish Battlefields report on Clontarf. The problem is that Clontarf is the battle everybody wants to be involved with. At the risk of making it a, a, a crude 20th century parallel, it's how many people could you pack into the G GPO in 1916. Um, the, um, the earliest accounts we have, and the most reliable ones, talk about, I think, a thousand people on each side, but even that's probably not reliable. Um, though it's probably possibly not far off. It's certainly a large group of people. But then gradually, by the time you get to the 16th century, there are people who we know for a fact have been dead for 150 years who have nonetheless managed miraculously to turn up with, with, with a Clontarf with a couple of thousand um, followers each. Um, I think just, think just thinking in terms of it, Brian is the major political figure. He certainly has his own men with him. And, and at, at the very least, several two, two or three neighboring kingdoms are supporting him. 
On the other side, then, you've got the forces of North Leinster, certainly, under Mael Morda. You've got uh, a substantial force of Dubliners, even though Citric Silkbeard himself doesn't take part. And then there is a not, certainly the Earl of Orkney is there. I don't think there's any doubt about that and his followers. So it's probably, I would, I would say several thousand, but probably not the tens of thousands, which it's become by the end of the Middle Ages. Sorry, it's a very roundabout answer, but it's a very difficult question to, to, to address. Uh, what effect does uh, weather and topology have on recovery of items from the battlefield? Like, does a muddy field produce more arrowheads or a tidal area less? The, in, in, to, uh, to be honest, I'm not, I don't think the quality, I mean, any battlefield becomes muddy. I think that that's, that's a, a, a side effect of it. Um, though I'm not aware of any study that's been done which suggests that a battle fought in, in torrential rain is likely to produce more stray finds than, than, than one fought in, 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 on dry land. Um, the, in terms of the tidal material and the river-based finds are extremely interesting and it's really crying out, I think, for detailed research. There's an extraordinary peak in the Viking Age, not just in Ireland but in Britain, as, uh, sorry, in England, I should say, as well. Of, fi of weapon finds from river sites, particularly from forts. And I think that there's, there are three arguments out there. One of them is that they are, they're simply stray finds, that somebody's dropped them. The second is that they're ritual uh, finds, that it's some kind of votive offering of pagan Vikings. And the third is the, 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 the remnants of a battle. Um, and in this context, I think, it, because obviously if you drop something in, on the bottom of a muddy ford, there's very, very little chance you're going to actually be able to recover it. Um, and so I do think if this, if, at the risk of sticking my neck out, if anything is going to turn up in Clontarf, and I would be, at this stage, it's so much development, I'm dubious, I would say that probably it's somewhere around the Talk Estuary we might get a weapon. But of course, as I pointed out, even if we find one, how do we link it to Clontarf specifically, other than saying it's broadly contemporary? So the terrain, I'm not aware of weather, but certainly the terrain, I think, has an impact, and, and things like, like flood, um, floodplains and, 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 and rivers. Hello. Uh, I have two questions, really. One is, uh, how did Brian get to Clontarf? Did he go via Kilmainham and over to Hoth? And why would he have picked Clontarf to be his main sort of standing area? And secondly, uh, what kind of armour did the um, contestants wear at that time on, on either side? Uh, to answer your first, the, I think the, the, the short answer to your question about Clontarf is that nobody actually quite knows. It, it would make far more sense, given, we're, given that Brian is approaching from the west, to, uh, to actually just march on Dublin from the west down the Liffey Valley. And that is kind of where you would expect to, to find it. There are records that, uh, particularly in the Cugga, that he's burning North Dublin, burning the heart of Fingal, if you like. And that it's, it, he's doing this to go the Dubliners and perhaps into, into, and their allies into coming out and fighting him on, on open ground. Um, as to how he got there, I would imagine it was a broad uh, loop, if you will, sort of crossing. There's a, the, the King's Ford at Kilmainham, which would have given access, uh, allowed him across the Liffey and then sort of swinging round wide, if you like, and coming in from the Clontarf direction. 
Armour is an extremely interesting question. Um, the the Kogga talks extensively about, about armour, but it's it's a again I'm not certain whether they're actually using classical references rather than referring as opposed to this is what armour is written uh, as opposed to armour as it was at the time. Um, the there is this image of the Irish being unarmoured as against the Vikings being clad all in sort of shining mail. Um, which I suspect is over-exaggerated. I think that the two sides are actually armoured in a very, very similar way. One of the sections which I, I dropped, I, have to, I, I, I had a casual count of this paper um, on sort of about halfway through Sunday and realised you would still have been here at about half past two if I'd left everything in. And, and one of the things which I wanted to talk about in terms of archaeological evidence is the fact that increasingly we're becoming aware that there's actually very, very little difference between the way in which the Vikings were armoured and the way in which the uh, and the kinds of weapons they were using, and the weapons the Irish were using, the Irish are ad happily adapting Viking weapon types and Viking and, um, uh, but the Vi but interestingly enough, we thought it was a one-way process. The Irish, the Vikings of Dublin in particular, for some reason, are adapting Irish. That spearhead type is actually Irish, we think originally. So are the shields they're using. So there's this constant from a very very early point two-way transfer. So whatever their uh, whatever their armor is, I think it's available to both sides. So it's, which is a slightly vague answer, but the best I can do, I'm afraid. Is there is there any date for the spearheads that you mentioned there? These ones, um, they, the, the earliest examples we have are from Kilmainham Island Bridge, that cemetery I showed you. So they would date from um, the mid to late 9th century. And then since we've identified them as a type, we've managed to track them down in two 10th century Viking graves, one at Larne and the other one at Balachir on the Isle of Man. So they certainly continue into the 10th century. Um, and then we, and there are, there's, and so, and so I'm, I'm, I simplified my argument a little. I think if they survive for 100 years, and certainly the decorative feature of these rivets survives into the, into the early 11th century. I have a friend who was, she's nearly 90 years of age, and she was brought up uh, on the Hoth Road um, near to Colester Village. Now, she spoke about her uncle, who I presumed was near to where her father lived. I don't know where he lived, but she said how he went into a house, he, he either bought or rented a house, and he spent a lot of time digging his garden. And she said that he kept coming across spearheads. So he wanted to get on with his garden, and he, he gathered them up and eventually brought them to the National Museum. So they took them and said, would they sent word to him to come back. So when he went back, they were all wrapped up again by the museum, who said, yes, they probably did come from the Battle of Clontarf, but they had no more room because of the amount of spearheads they had got, and would he please take them away? So, I, <laughs> thank you. I, I don't think I should comment on that. <laughs> um, it's, it's, uh, they're, they're, they're actually, weapons are actually very unusual finds. They're too valuable to, to lose as such. And so you usually only find them either in, in river contexts or, or in burials, uh, where they've been deliberately deposited by, 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 pa by pagan Vikings. Um, but the, 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 uh, um, so it would be unusual to find a, 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 cluster, a, a cluster like that, but um, I can't. Uh. Oh, yes, oh, sorry. And, and, and if, well, if you don't mind, uh, I, I've been asked to um, point out that the one of the, the tech, this, this, if anyone is interested in, in spearhead types and so on and so forth, the, uh, 
the book I mentioned, um, which I've co-authored with with uh, Rhino Lafine of the National Museum, Viking Graves and Grave Goods in Ireland, should be out hopefully um, by the end of the summer, uh, if not if not slightly earlier. And there are a couple of flyers, I think, at the bottom. Uh, Forgive me for being greedy and having another question. Um, I wondered about the uh, the boats in which the uh, Vikings came. Do they take them all back with them, or do they leave some behind? Uh, do, do you mean do you mean going to the battle or on no, the day, or just just generally? Uh, they came to Ireland in, in vessels and boats. Mm. Uh, do they take them all back with them, or? Are there any remains? There are, uh, there are uh, there's some wonderful remains of fragments of boats uh, found in various parts of Dublin where the, because of the way in which the Vikings made boats, they, they, they built the shell first and then put the frames in afterwards. So uh, you've got these, even after the, uh, a particular set of clinker planking became too, too fragile to actually be used in the water, it was still a very useful wooden object and you find them turning up and as paths and things like that around around Dublin uh, around Dublin there's a lot of like uh, the the new site at Woodstown uh, in Waterford as well has produced a lot a lot of ship rivets um, and they're definitely building the ships here as well it's not just that they're breaking them breaking them up um, the Skolidev tow which I, I showed you which is the, the Howingston from Blendalock as the replica is actually one of the largest Viking warships ever found anywhere in the Viking world and it was actually built definitely in Dublin even though it finished its life by being sunk in, in, in Denmark. So they, they bring this, the, their ship, their seafaring, their technology with them, and, and, it's, and it's used in Dublin and used in Waterford, and they become both Dublin and Waterford have, ma have major fleets, which um, they sell out to the highest bidder, effectively, throughout most of the 11th and 12th centuries. Um, and, there's, and even into the 13th century, after the Anglo-Norman invasion, there are references there are royal orders and edicts telling the men of Dublin in particular to build galleys to defend the king's waterways. And it's just assumed the technology is present in Dublin to allow them to do that. So it's, they definitely leave, they leave, their, their, their ship, leave their shipbuilding technology behind them, as it, as it were. And of course, I, I, I had the, uh, as a child in Arklow, I was, I was brought out in a clinker-built boat to go fishing, which was uh, using precisely the same technology that... Um, that are the same basic technology, and, and I still have the privilege to sail at Clontarf today in a, in a wooden clinker-built boat, so the technology is very much still with us. Yeah. 